welcome to Cancer Talk, the podcast that explores the potential of integrative medicine in cancer care. Integrative medicine is an inclusive approach that combines the full resources of conventional medicine with a broad range of lifestyle and complementary approaches to address the multiple needs of those with cancer in body, in mind and in spirit. Each episode of Cancer Talk, oncologist Dr. Penny Kekayoglu and I, Robin Daly of Yes to Life, will be building bridges between conventional medicine and a host of other therapies and practices with the aim of improving the care of people with cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Penny. I'm a clinical oncologist in the National Health Service and clinical director, and I treat patients with cancer using different modalities, including chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and holistic approaches. I welcome you all to Cancer Talk, and um, I'm looking forward to joining more specialists to talk about integrative medicine. Hello, I'm Robin Daly, founder and chairman of Yes to Life, the UK charity helping people with cancer to learn about and use integrative medicine. Each episode of Cancer Talk, Robin and I will be jointly hosting guest specialists from the world of integrative medicine with the aim of exploring the potential of improving the health of patients through their particular skills and experiences. Hi Penny, welcome back to another Cancer Talk. Really good to see you again. We've got a, a very special guest today, someone I know you're going to be very excited to meet. Dr. Robin Youngson. Uh, hi, Robin. Very nice to see you, and I'm so excited for today's podcast. It's a pleasure to join you. This is it's in the evening in New Zealand. It's your morning, so good morning. <laughs> good <laughs> Thank you, Robin. So yeah, Robin's had an extraordinary life, and uh, I mean, maybe you ought to weigh straight in if you wouldn't mind, Robin. Just give us a, a bit of an overview of where have you been in your journey of healthcare. Sure. Well, um, I came to medicine a little late. Um, I was a geek as a teenager and um, found myself doing an engineering degree at Cambridge in England. And about halfway through that became old enough to realize that I really had a deeper desire to serve people. And my father was a doctor. So I um, made the decision to ultimately study medicine, which would require saving up a great deal of money. So I got the highest paid job I could find on graduating which is working in oil exploration, to my shame, (laughs) in in the light of the climate crisis and everything else. But it was a very highly paid job, and it was mostly in West Africa, but it also posted me to New Zealand, where I met my wife Meredith um, 43, 44 years ago. So that was lovely. We're still together. And then I did my medical training in Bristol in England and did my anaesthetic anesthetic fellowship and we had a visit back to New Zealand to see Mara's family and decided life was better there so in 90 end of 91 emigrated to New Zealand and settled here and I did my anesthetic fellowship here and then got a job as a consultant anesthetist in our biggest teaching and trauma hospital in Auckland but that job was unusual because half my time was given to um, kind of patient process redesign and quality improvement and patient safety and stuff like that and half-time clinical practice and uh, so I brought my engineering background to that and then that led to me being appointed to a national committee that advised the New Zealand government on quality and safety in healthcare. I became an advisor to the WHO on patient safety 
And so I was very much involved technically with quality improvement in healthcare and Institute of Healthcare Improvement and stuff like that. And then in, I'd always had a profound empathy for the suffering of patients within institutions. And um, even as a medical student, realized I had a lot more empathy than a lot of my colleagues. And it took me, it took me until my 50s for the penny to drop. And I realized that this was just recreating my experience of a poor little boy locked in a hideous boarding school age 10. And this uh, uh, boarding, English boarding school institution is really the archetype for the organization of a hospital. Absolutely. And, um, so in every suffering patient I saw in the hospital, I was really seeing myself as a 10-year-old boy forcibly separated from family, um, relentlessly bullied in this hierarchical institution with dreadful food and, and arbitrary rules. And um, yeah, matron was in charge. She was pretty scary. Um, and then in 2004, my our daughter Chloe, who is 18, a university student, crashed her little car into a truck and broke her neck and her back and ended up in our biggest trauma hospital for three months. Her spinal cord was mostly intact. It was a bit bruised, but her fractures were very complex. And that was managed conservatively in spinal traction. So she spent three months flat on her back with uh, a steel ring bolted to her skull and ropes and weights. And um, the quality of clinical care she had was really excellent. Um, but of course, I mean, there were some things that go wrong in three months in hospital. But the lack of response to her really basic human needs was so profoundly shocking and distressing that, that I'd call that my radicalization. Mm. So for after that experience, I vowed to try to change the system. Um, and even though there are many kind and compassionate nurses and doctors and therapists, the system itself is inordinately callous towards the needs of, of human beings. Um, and that ultimately led to founding um, an organization called Hearts and Healthcare, an international movement to try to bring more humanity and compassion to healthcare, co-founded with my wife. And that work has taken us to about 12 or 15 countries in many different cultures. Um, the NHS Confederation invited me to write a policy discussion paper in 2008 in preparation for their annual conference. And then the Minister of Health Secretary of State for Health in his speech at the conference had to talk about compassion and healthcare. And then that became quite big news in the media. So the independent newspaper, the whole of the back page was devoted to this idea of, you know, can we make healthcare more compassionate? And I remember that the Royal College of Nurses was involved and that there were cynical headlines like, you know, nurses are going to be paid to smile and this kind of thing. But, but it was actually quite a formative piece of work and it led to compassion being uh, absorbed as one of the key values of the NHS um, charter. Um, so we, the work had some influence. I wrote a book called Time to Care, How to Love Your Patients and Your Job, and that was moderately successful. It got translated into several languages. So we had book launches and the launch of campaigns in, in the Netherlands and in Germany and in Hungary. Um, so yeah, I continued that work until about three years ago. Um, and then more latterly, completely by chance, I came across such an extraordinary new innovative neuroscience-based method of healing that uh, I trained in that and I've now completely quit my career as a medical specialist and I work full-time as a trauma therapist doing the most extraordinary 
an amazing and gratifying work I've ever done as a doctor and its applications in healthcare are immense and almost nobody knows about it yet. It, it's, it's quite a new therapy. Mm. So, you know, that's in a nutshell. Wow, amazing. That's great. Career. Yeah, what a, that's well, amazing. I'm in career number three now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, plenty to talk about there. So look, do you want to just sort of weigh in with a bit of blue sky thinking and just describe what a really good healthcare system would look like to you? What would be the vital ingredients of that? What's really missing from the current system? What, what is it you want to bring in? Boy, that, that's a big question. Um, I, I can only answer that question now from the perspective of the work and I do. Mm. And I, I'm involved in healing work of the most extraordinary power, but gentleness. I mean, if I think of the doctor patient relationship, and all the dominance and the power relationship and the way that doctors treat patients who become a passive recipient of treatment. Um, the work I do now is completely the opposite in terms of the power relationship and the relationship with my clients. I'm not doing any treatment to anyone. The human brain has this unbelievable capacity for healing trauma. And I see it happening within minutes right in front of me. And from that, and I'm seeing life changing results in my clinic every single day. And from that perspective, when I look at healthcare, I just see violence and dominance and a, a medical system that, you know, is based on science that is entirely materialistic, that doesn't even acknowledge that human beings are conscious people. Um, and I, I just think we need to all pretty much start from scratch and, and redesign a lot of you know, medical science and practice with the section of the wonderful work we do for those who are severely ill or injured. I mean, as an anesthetist and intensive care specialist, I see the wonders of modern science. So if you're really sick or you have something that a surgery can fix, then modern medicine is wonderful. If you have any kind of chronic illness, physical or mental, then I think our health system is a disaster. And, and I think our institutions are fundamentally incompatible with the kind of healing work I now do. And, and, you know, I really am thinking a lot about creating entirely new institutions. And I've utterly given up trying to change anything in the healthcare system. Mm, interesting. Robin, why do you think um, we are in this situation? I mean, you are an engineer and you went to medicine because you care about people and you have demonstrated throughout mm -hmm. your life that you really do care. But why is that happening? Why are we not all in the same space. We want the best for our patients. Yeah. We want to care. We want to make them feel like yeah. human beings and have that person-centered yes. approach. Why is, is it not happening, do you think? Very much. I mean, I think just about every health professional, when they come into a you know, health profession, are motivated by that desire to care. I mean, the definition of Compassion is the humane understanding of suffering and a deep desire to want to do something about it, to relieve suffering. And that's that's the calling that mm -hmm. brings us into the professions. And sadly, we're seeing 30, 40, 50% of all the doctors burnt out, you know, with, with cynicism and depersonalization and emotional exhaustion mm -hmm. because of the mismatch between their deep desire to care for people and the reality of the system. And I think it comes down most fundamentally to the nature of medical science. And this goes back more than a century. And in the USA and Canada, there was a report called the Flexner Report published in about 1910, 
which completely restructured the nature of medical training. And at that time, they imported a model from Germany of a very narrow materialistic reductionist kind of science. And they said that medicine can't survive unless it's scientific. But the definition of science was extremely narrow. And at that time, there were a lot of very holistic schools of medicine. Um, and they were all closed down. And the only medical schools that survived were the ones that taught and promoted and researched this very narrow materialistic version of science. And it was funded by um, Rockefeller and Carnegie, who were the, 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 the richest men in the world at that time. They were industrialists. And Rockefeller had all of the companies that refined oil. And he started out of that came the pharmaceutical companies. And um, they were they made massive research grants to the prestigious medical schools. And the report said that medical schools can't survive as a training institution. They have to be research institution. And from that moment, they became totally dependent on funding from the pharmaceutical and technology companies. Yeah. And if you look at medical training now, all of the medical experts in the world, the opinion leaders, are basically in the pockets of the pharmaceutical and technology companies. All of the international conferences that they present at are sponsored by these companies. All of, all of the major textbooks of medicine are written by these experts that are completely involved in this narrow form of materialistic science. Every bit of medical schools are research institutions, and most of the teachers are researchers paid for by pharmaceutical companies that do a bit of teaching on the side. Um, every medical conference or continuing medical education is sponsored by the corporations. No medical journal would exist without funding and advertising from the corporations. So there's now four or five generations of doctors completely immersed in this incredibly narrow version of science, scientific materialism, which in no way describes a human being. And I think that's the fundamental you know, problem within healthcare. It's the nature of our scientific beliefs yeah. um, and the use of you know, randomized controlled trials and so on. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been searching this question for about 30 or 40 years trying to understand. And, and I think it comes down to those fundamental beliefs. Yeah, um, and, and we certainly see that in our day to day, don't we? Um, in terms of trying to introduce the integrative approach to healthcare. Yeah. And we get the barriers in terms of there is no randomized controlled trial to prove it, but there's yeah. very good evidence that actually has shown, look at the clinical outcomes. But yeah. you're right, I agree with you. You know, we, we are kind of, you know, um, obsessed almost as, a, as, a, as healthcare professionals about um, randomized controlled trials and high level those yeah. evidence that actually evidence yeah. exists. It's a matter of appraising it and evaluating it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's. I'll give an illustration. About three or four years ago, I was commissioned by the editors of the BMJ to write an essay on the role of compassion in healthcare. And I thought, hallelujah, finally, I'm going to get the <laughs> publication in the mainstream journal. And, you know, they really want to know about this stuff. And, and I naively assumed because it had been commissioned by the editors, it would just get published. But of course, it went to peer review. And one peer reviewer said, you should not use the word healing because it has negative connotations. Wow. And you should take it out of your manuscript. Another reviewer said, um, you haven't 
you haven't explained how dangerous it would be to show compassion to a patient with a mental health disorder and and the negative side effects the dangerous side effects of compassionate care i mean these were two out of three reviewers my paper was was rejected i think yeah. it was just these are the kind of attitudes um and this is in quite recent times i got my revenge by publishing the article <laughs> on my website complete with the reviewers <laughs> comments which you're not allowed to do in academia but i thought what the hell <laughs> yeah um yeah so it's amazing yeah so you're you were talking about the fact you know you put all this effort into trying to change the healthcare system and uh, but now you're feeling like we almost need an, another healthcare system Funnily enough, there is sort of, that's sort of how it is. Uh, complementary alternative medicine has Ooh. turned into an alternative healthcare system. It's not really a system, but it is a huge uh, and thriving uh, yeah. sector of healthcare in which a mass of techniques are out there for people to help them. Every single one of them pretty much is what you describe as person-centered, you know, it's really about people. Yes, it's all about, much. you know, the practitioners who listen, understand and support their patients and don't want to have any kind of authority over them. So it, it, it already exists in a way. Uh, and so we're faced with a new problem, if you like, as well, how do we bring these two things together? Because the separation and the antipathy that exists uh, between the two is still a nightmare for patients. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, our experience over many, many years in the hearts and healthcare, you know, really told us a lot because, you know, I got very passionate about bringing more humanity and compassion into healthcare. And just out of, you know, out of a kind of, you know, deep heart centered value. But then I thought, well, maybe we can find some science to support this. So I started yeah. scanning the literature and there was an extraordinary amount of research showing that if care was compassionate, you got dramatically better patient outcomes, um, that there were few complications, that the length of stay was shortened, um, you know, just really quite extraordinary. Also that, that if you supported compassionate care within the institution, it gave meaning and joy to the, the jobs of health professionals, that they would have far less burnout that you would get far fewer patient complaints, um, far fewer bad outcomes. It would save the organization. I mean, there's really good research showing compassionate care will, will really benefit the bottom line. So, you know, here's a triple benefit for the win-win-win for the patient, for the providers and for the funders. And mm -hmm. we were invited to do consulting work in many different healthcare corporations and public health boards in different countries and the executive team would be very enthusiastic and we'd run workshops and presentations and the staff would get widely excited. It didn't survive in any single institution. It just, it was overwhelmed by the, you know, the winter workload and the budget blowout and everything else. So even though there was a profound weight of evidence that it would benefit everyone, that the change could not be sustained. And the sole exception to that is where a lot of work we did in the city of Louisville in Kentucky, which is the model compassionate city in the USA. And we made six visits over about five or six years. And we reframed that work out of individual organizations into the whole city. And we actually used crowdfunding for our work and nobody owned the work. No corporation could put their logo on it or you know, own it or control it. And we actually got healthcare executives and community leaders and political leaders and business leaders 
working across multiple different organizations with this idea of trying to support compassionate healthcare. And they have an annual uh, luncheon to celebrate compassionate health care in this. And the, the city leaders and the mayors, their business leaders, people from the medical schools and the nursing schools and the big corporations and, you know, three or 400 people come for luncheon and they give prizes for individuals for compassionate caregiving. And that's the only oh, place in the world where our work was actually sustained. Mm -hmm. um, and that was reframing it out of the organization into a whole city. But it just told us that it doesn't matter how much evidence you have, if the culture of the institution doesn't support that the change that you want, it, it's just not going to flourish. Um, we, we help many, many thousands of healthcare professionals reconnect to the heart of their practice and, and climb out of burnout and find more joy and satisfaction. But they were the they were rare individuals that battled against inhuman systems. And, you know, in the end, I just gave that up. I mean, I just said, I mean, there are some wonderful, inspiring young leaders that stepped in my place that are doing some work, but I think we just need to start from scratch and build new institutions based on, based on fundamentally different science and different values. Mm. So, uh, yeah, can we just talk a bit more about the, the power of these systems, which seems to go beyond the individuals who are in them? You know, you, we, everybody acknowledges that healthcare is round full of amazing people who are doing, going way beyond the odds to try and help. And yet they are individually kind of totally constrained and crushed by a system and restricted as to what they can offer and what they can do and how much they can help uh, in, a, in a multitude of ways. So... Well, what is this system beyond the individuals who are in it? I mean, you've talked a bit about the ideas behind it, which is the, the science and the thinking. Mm -hmm. um, is there more to it than that? Yeah, it's also what gets taught in a Master's of Business and Business Administration, an MBA. So I remember when my daughter Chloe was in hospital in spinal traction, she was starving in a hospital. You know, she, she couldn't feed herself. She's lying flat on her back. She couldn't see food trays that are brought into the room. The ward was short-staffed. She had facial injuries. She needed to be fed by a nurse or an assistant very carefully. There would, um, she was a vegetarian, and the vegetarian version of hospital food is just dreadful. Take the meat and off, contains yeah. <laughs> almost no nutritional value. And mm -hmm. it, they would hurt her face with, with crude feeding, and it would dribble down her chin and her neck, and she'd feel humiliated, humiliated like a baby. And she decided that rather than be humiliated and hurt and have food that tasted so awful, she would rather starve. And she lost, I think, 10 or 12 kilograms in her first month in hospital. And if you have multiple broken bones and injuries, you need wonderful nutrition to recover from that. Now, the a typical hospital will organization will be divided up into 12 divisions with a general manager in charge of each. And one poor general manager gets the food budget and the services and the engineering works and everything else. And he's told to cut his budget by 30 million pounds um, because the whole health organization is over budget. So he cuts back on the food. Now, of course, the consequence of that is that almost every patient in the hospital is malnourished and doesn't recover well from injuries and illness. And the average length of stay goes up by an unspecified amount, which costs $100 million to another general manager. But of course, no one's accounting for that because we've divided 
the hospital organization into these different bits. And I got really, really angry with hospital managers and how stupid they were until I remembered that physicians do exactly the same thing. <laughs> we divide a human body into a heart department and a lung department and a skin department and a gut department and a bone department and a brain department. And, you know, we patient, the poor patient's body is divided up and treated independently by all these different specialists who don't talk to each other when they understand each other. So it's the same, comes down to the same kind of machine thinking and, um, yeah, fragmentation um, mm. and, and reductionism that is, lies behind the theory of management as it does the theory of, of um, medicine. It's, it's pretty much the same kind of thinking and it's the thinking of the Western world. This is the fundamental basis of our assumptions about the world. That's, um, mm. that's the difficulty, I think. And these are all very good people trying really hard to do a good job. And mm. you describe just one organization within the system, but compassionate care, I guess, is, is everywhere or should be everywhere from the time, yes. you know, patients live at home with chronic conditions. How do we yeah. ensure we offer compassionate yeah. care to those and address yeah. the needs? And as you yeah. say, if we do that right, actually the system benefits in a lot of ways and, and, and people quality of life improves. There is one brilliant example I know of that in the Western world, which is so striking. Now, I don't know if you know about this. This is an organization called Burtzorg in the Netherlands. And this is the organization that provides all of the, the, the home nursing or community nursing or district nursing, whatever you would call it now in the NHS. And um, what happened, this started in 2006, I think. And at that time, the, the managers and the accountants had got into the system and got big data. And they decided that they need to make community nursing very efficient. And every community nurse was therefore given a computerized list of tasks to do that day, like catheter changes and dressing changes and you know whatever, all the other things they do. And they were held to account for the efficiency of doing these lists of tasks. And they're all burning out and all miserable. And the manager who had a much better idea somehow managed to get the funding to provide community nursing to one small community and he employed four nurses. And he said, your senior, experienced, wonderful, skillful, compassionate nurses, just go out and provide the best nursing care you can to this community. Forge relationships and partnership with the GPs and community services. And I'm not going to tell you anything to do because you're much smarter than I am. So pretty soon they were doing a wonderful job and having a lot of satisfaction. And more nurses said, hey, can we join? And they got more and more funding contracts. And within about three to four years, about 70 to 80% of the entire national community nursing care in the whole nation had gone over to this organization. And the organization of work was to put people in teams of 10 to 12. There are no bosses whatsoever. The teams are completely autonomous. Mm -hmm. They have a secure kind of social networking system where they can share knowledge and information. And if they've got a problem no one can solve, they can post it within a few hours later, someone will suggest an answer. They have a head office now at the time I last saw it with 35 staff that runs contracts worth 200 million euro a year and run basically the whole national. So Ernst & Young, the consultant company, were sent in to see, was this any better than the existing legacy system? And they found that um, the outcomes were being achieved with 40% fewer work hours, so 40% increase in productivity. 
that the patients rated their satisfaction with the service the average nationally was 9.1 out of 10 that patients were recovering from injuries and falls and surgery in about half the time and that presentations of the enrolled patients to eds were down by 30 percent wow um, so this is what happens when you allow health professionals to do holistic compassionate autonomous care and mm -hmm. the managers get out the way and Burtzog has been set up in other different countries but that's the only example I know of, of a radical reform and no one plotted the reform it was a purely evolutionary um, change that occurred starting with four nurses and the nurses one by one resigned from the legacy system and joined the new organization so that's you know really powerful evidence of how much better mm -hmm. healthcare could be if um, we had a different right. kind of organization and that's a beautiful example uh, of compassion and also compassion amongst colleagues, isn't it? And mm, yeah. which, if we are not compassionate to each other, we cannot really do our yeah. job properly, isn't it? That's where mm. the burnout comes. Yeah, yeah, that is very interesting. So, kind of the fundamental change, if you like, between those two scenarios you just described is the. A working model, it seemed to me the most fundamental thing is it went from the top down hierarchy yeah. uh, to the autonomous uh, and uh, e everybody having equal status and working together. And uh, I mean, that's interesting as a model. I mean, the top down model was the model for society when I, yes. I was young. You know, that you ran everything like that. And of course, uh, everywhere you went was quite abusive, basically, as a result. That's how it worked. You know, you got uh, you're going to see the bank manager was a major ordeal. He wasn't your friend who was going to help you in any way. He was definitely there to make you feel bad and small. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, it was everywhere, that kind of thing. And but it's not so popular now. And even, you know, businesses are finding that they can be much more successful if they leave that old model behind. There's plenty of businesses that won't leave it behind because the people who set them up actually like it when they have a top-down model. But um, that seems to be very fundamental to what's uh, wrong in healthcare. And really this is. is a kind of mi military view of healthcare, yeah. which doesn't really work when it comes to compassion. Yeah, it doesn't work in any circumstances because healthcare is necessarily a complex system and you can't solve problems in a complex system from a top-down hierarchy. The only way you can solve complex systems is to have those at the front line reacting to the local circumstances and problems, finding their own solutions. That's the only possible way that you can make advances in complex systems. It's really fundamental to complexity theory. So, mm. you know, and I think that the worst possible qualification for a healthcare executive is a is an MBA. <laughs> yeah, I really do. <laughs> right, right. And uh, that's fair enough. I came across an article that came out this weekend here in the press. It's on the front page of the Guardian Weekend magazine. So it's a major presence. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, somebody writing about their experience of their daughter dying in hospital and the catalogue of mistakes that was made, yeah. which I would put down entirely to the top-down model. Yeah. The the guy at the top who was off for the weekend really didn't have a clue what was going on and was too up his own backside to actually find out what was needed, whereas the people on the ground who knew things were seriously wrong were completely disempowered and yeah. unable to do anything about it. 
So this led to the death of her daughter, which totally tragic, but yeah. n sadly yeah. not uncommon yeah. that that kind of thing happens. Yeah, shocking. And that's that's another example of a complete failure to make progress, because despite the BMJ and the Institute of Healthcare Improvement doing extraordinary work with massive international conferences and training lots of people to you know make healthcare safer in the USA healthcare error is still the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer um, mm. and the rates of healthcare error have really not changed in any significant way despite you know 20 years of really determined effort and you know I was part of that I sat on a World Health Organization International Committee for Patient Safety Solutions and um, there have been some advances. For instance, in New Zealand, I was um, one of the medical leaders who pioneered open disclosure and apology after um, you know, a healthcare error. Um, and that's been a very significant advance. And that's really taken off in New Zealand. Um, and we also have no fault compensation nationally funded for all kinds of accident, including healthcare error, without even having to name a doctor. Um, and you can't sue a doctor in New Zealand. It's against the law. Um, so we have much more progressive systems for dealing with and helping and compensating people that get harmed, including apology and open disclosure. And, and that's certainly advanced. But in technical terms, healthcare is just as dangerous as it's always been. And, and with the last two years of COVID and the healthcare systems in crisis, I mean, people have just stopped measuring what's happening. Like wait times in emergency department are not being measured in New Zealand anymore. They've just been abandoned because they were just completely at the window. I mean, it, the system's been in crisis. So uh, right. and I, you know, I've done in root cause investigations of terrible accidents happening to patients, and I know what happens when the system gets overloaded. It's, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's kind of dispiriting after all this effort to realize that we actually haven't made much difference to the system. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, we saw a lot of compassion during COVID. Um, it it yes. was a very hard period, but it put people yes. together for for that yeah. time where crisis occurred to put the patient first. So we saw very good examples yeah. of yes. great care. Yeah. yeah. And it's mm. just incredible how people show up every day. I mean, the healthcare as a system would have collapsed decades ago if it wasn't for the incredible dedication Absolutely. of your healthcare workers. Mm that just yeah. front up each day in the most appalling work conditions mm -hmm. and do their very best for patients and for each other. I mean, that's really mm -hmm. inspiring. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I'm really interested. So you in your your career have moved from uh, right in the mainstream there and now you're working independently outside of it and loving what you're doing. And your you know, your attitudes have obviously changed a lot over the years. And it's very interesting to me that I've come to see over the years that the same things that have made uh, mainstream medicine fail to adopt things that have been around as concepts for at least 40 years, which mm -hmm. is like patient-centered care, patient choice. They're just like, they still don't exist after 40 years of talking about them. And the reasons that that hasn't happened are exactly the same reasons that the whole of complementary alternative medicine yeah. has been excluded. And it's because they actually go into this territory of 
care and compassion, which actually is is kind of anathema to a top-down system. It yep. simply doesn't fit. It almost yep. undermines it, in fact. Yes. Yeah. The, the two are fundamentally incompatible. And, it's, and right. I've been thinking very deeply, now that I'm involved in a practice which shows such incredible promise for healthcare in many different areas, you know, I'm wondering, well, what's the best strategy for, for actually getting public funding for this or introducing it into the system. And, mm. um, but I, you know, I'd love to describe to you something about the, the technique and, and how it works. And we'd love to hear, yeah. And, and some of the barriers we've made in trying to progress it. So havening techniques, the word havening is a transitive verb. The origin is the word haven, a safe place. So havening means to bring to a safe place. It's, it's an extraordinary set of techniques developed by a medical researcher and doctor in in New York, Dr. Ronald Rudin, who's now in his 70s, and he's been working on this for more than 20 years. And he became intensely curious about what happens in the brain when we get traumatized. We all kind of intuitively know that a really bad thing can happen to us in a matter of minutes, and that can affect us for the rest of our lives. We can have PTSD, we can have flashbacks, we can have anxiety, we can have depression. And it seems to get stuck in our brain somehow. And he elucidated a very detailed scientific theory published in 2017 to show the neuroanatomical pathways and all the way down to the molecular mechanisms. And traumatic um, encoding of traumatic memories occurs mostly in the lateral body, the right amygdala. We have two amygdalae, but most of the trauma is in the right amygdala. And it's where the sensory nerves come in and synapse the first synapse in the lateral body. And he's, what he's put together is a very detailed scientific model of how during a traumatic event where we have a big stress response, our brain is filled with very fast brain waves called gamma waves. And it turns out there's a whole pile of enzymes and molecular machinery within the neuronal cells that are frequency sensitive. So there are voltage gated calcium channels on the membrane of the cells and if the brain waves are very fast, oscillating gamma is up to 100 cycles per second, 100 hertz, then that causes a very fast modulation of intracellular calcium, which activates a set of enzymes, which um, allows a whole pile of receptors to be pushed up to and expressed on the surface of the postsynaptic membrane, and then superglued in place with a phosphate bond. So there's a, a phosphatase enzyme, PKM zeta, which applies a phosphate bond that superglues the mem the, the, these new receptors in the membrane, and it's forming a reflex link between the sensory input and the outflow of the traumatic memory. And this is permanent. It's hardwired in the operating system of your brain for the rest of your life. Mm. And the, the, the effects of a traumatic memory are um, a whole pile of cognitive effects in, in terms of you know, flashbacks and thoughts and beliefs and the story of your trauma, of your sexual abuse or whatever it was. Um, all the autonomic, the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, responses. Um, somatic, somatosensory responses. So a traumatic memory can include the hardwired encoding of physical pain, of, of body posture, of weakness, of, of neurological symptoms, um, of a feeling of constriction, lots of body different symptoms, and then emotional reactions. So our brain kind of creates a multimedia web image of the trauma, including the setting, the context, the events that are happening that are threatening, 
Um, and all of our internal responses, our mental, our emotional, our physical, our stress responses, and it's hardwired in the operating system, our brain. And this traumatic memory can be triggered within 75 milliseconds of sensory information coming to the brain, external sensory information or internal sensory information, like a thought or a memory going back to a memory or a feeling of stress can trigger it off. And then we're completely in the thralls of these automatic reactions. What he discovered in the course of that research is that in animal models, if you can find these clusters of neurons that are encoding the trauma, that if you activate them and depolarize the nerves, if you then stimulate the brain with very low frequency brain waves called delta waves, which are a frequency of about one cycle per second or even less, these are the, these are the brain waves we get during deep sleep, which is a time of healing and replenishing, that the frequency sensitive enzymes then put the whole mechanism of encoding of trauma into reverse. And within, and this molecular mechanism that starts to break apart the nerve connections only lasts about seven or eight minutes. And it actually dissolves away the phosphate bonds as a, as a phosphatase enzyme activated. And this receptors become free in the cell membrane and then they're endocytosed into the cell and disposed of in, in a matter of minutes. And, um, Clinically, what I'm seeing is that someone who has a horrendous phobia of earthquakes, having been in the city of Christchurch that was destroyed by a major earthquake about 10 years ago, where lots of people died and lots of buildings fell down, and has fear responses every single day, to have that trauma completely removed from the brain in less than five minutes, and that person's fear and phobia to be completely abolished in five minutes. And it's just the most astonishing thing to witness. Now, Dr. Rudin, the developer of this, um, has published a detailed scientific paper, but he's also a very intuitive thinker. And he had an idea that certain forms of human connection and touch are important for healing. And he noticed that when people are sitting nervously waiting for a job interview, they're rubbing their hands on their legs like I'm doing now. Right. Or they rub their hands yeah. together. Yeah. Or when we see someone distressed or crying, we touch and rub them on the shoulder. And mothers touch the faces of babies. And if you video people who are distressed, they always touch their faces or they put their hands on the back of the head and kind of rub it or rub their faces. So he became curious about whether the palms of the hands, the upper arms and the face were sensitive in some way to touch that might be related to healing from trauma. So they took a whole pile of research subjects with PTSD and put them in the neuroscience lab and measured the brain waves and discovered that very precisely stimulation of soothing stroke to those three areas of the body generates massive amounts of delta waves in the brain. And I'm a bit of a geek. I've got my own brainwave monitor with electrodes <laughs> on the forehead and an app on my iPhone. And my brain waves change within 30 seconds, a massive amount of delta waves. So so the protocols for havening are to ask someone to recall a traumatic event that activates the neurons that are holding it. We um, then start the havening touch, which is just a soaking, stroking touch to the arms, the hands and the face. And then we use a variety of mind games and distraction to take the client's mind away from that horrible story. And the trauma just dissolves away by itself with no effort whatsoever. It is just the most astounding thing to see. Um, and subsequently, after his well, theories were published, then, then there's the first scientific publication only about 10 years ago that described a new class of sensory nerves in the skin 
see tactile afferents and the only job of these nerves is to detect a soothing touch and if you stroke too fast they don't signal if you stroke too slowly they don't signal if you stroke with a cold object they don't signal they're highly specific nerves part of human biology and when we touch each other and rub each other in these very specific areas it produces this intense feeling of love and connection and safety and those low frequency brain waves in the, the delta waves in the brain trigger these kind of mechanisms that dissolve away the trauma and it's just um when i first i heard about this for two whole years before i even looked at it because it sounded so woo-woo and ridiculous but yeah you have the worst <laughs> trauma in the world and you stroke your arms for a few minutes and it all goes away yeah right um <laughs> and despite the fact it was a very esteemed colleague and friend in the usa uh, who's you know a master in this technique was trying to persuade me to take an interest um mm. and that's that's what I do full time. And I'm seeing people, I did a research series of uh, 30 mothers with very severe childbirth trauma and PTSD as a result of childbirth trauma, who on thinking of their childbirth around floods of tears, they've got intrusive images, they're having multiple fear responses, they're, uh, they're pregnant and they're in utter dread of the next cesarean section or delivery. If they see program on TV about childbirth around floods of tears and distress, and 80% of my clients were fully recovered from their PTSD in one session of therapy. And, and the, almost all the rest were recovered in two sessions. That, that's an example. Um, that's extremely fast. Severe chronic pain, complex regional pain syndrome, the worst type of chronic pain that's almost impossible to treat. I've seen that just vanish in front of my eyes in one or two sessions. And clients completely transform their lives. I mean, it's just... And, and there's a very, very detailed neuroanatomical and, and physiological and um, molecular theory sitting behind this. And as an anesthetist, I'm a very skilled observer of physiology, and I'm seeing profound physiological changes in my patients within minutes, right in front of my eyes, as the trauma is released. It's just, and some clients are very yeah. complex, and yeah. all their trauma is dissociated, and they don't know what the trauma is. They don't have the memories but we work with whatever's presenting, their life difficulties, their emotional feelings, their body reactions. And as we build their resilience, then the, the traumas that were dissociated come up to the surface and one by one we can heal them. And you know, after a period of time, we can cure even really complex mental disorders. This is so hard. Mm. And for our patients, uh, cancer patients suffer from post-traumatic oh. disorder. So much. In the memory yeah. of, of the treatments, of the diagnosis, yes. of the shock. Yeah. So how powerful would that be? Have you worked yeah. with cancer patients? Um, I've done a little bit of work with cancer patients. I mean, Havening is so new. The first training course in the whole world was in 2013. Um, in New Zealand, I was only the second certified practitioner in the whole country, mm -hmm. and that was four years ago. Um, I'm now a trainer. I've trained about... Um, there's about 50 certified practitioners in New Zealand, so still very few people have heard about it. It's really new. I've trained about 15 doctors so far. Um, the training course I did in May, six psychologists from my local public health board came to the training course. And one of them is now using this technique on the inpatient mental health unit. Mm -hmm. And patients that were completely stuck and not progressing with conventional treatments are you know, getting breakthroughs. So it's, it's pretty new. Um, and it's, but again, I mean, this is such a beautiful, gentle, 
treatment that it, it's fundamentally incompatible with the culture and nature of you know hospital institutions and and schools and prisons and everywhere else we're trying to introduce it so it takes a very courageous individual to uh, use a, a non-evidence-based <laughs> technique at risk to their professional career and reputation um, you know even though that the anecdotal evidence is just utterly life-changing and extraordinary um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I just haven't been able to get research sponsored so I thought really hard about okay let's get a randomized control trial done mm -hmm. so I did my pilot trial in childbirth trauma so we've defined a really good subject group that's um, really well defined we've got very simple protocols and we know exactly how to do it we've got an outcome measure that's highly sensitive we've got an outcome size that's absolutely massive and it's an absolute gift you think for a researcher but you can't get ethical committee approval you can't find a researcher willing to risk their reputation and career in an unproven treatment you can't get research funding um, the first randomized control was in the UK and it took a couple of years to do the study and then it took three years to get published because the peer reviewers just dissed and they, you know they had to go back again and again and again to change scientific knowledge you need four or five randomized control trials that would take 10 years when you have absolutely proven new science the average time for the medical profession to to take on new science and adapt it into practice is 17 years and we can't afford to wait quarter of a century for this innovation so i'm much more interested in innovations like there's an app called um the assessed citizen or something the, these are researchers looking at microdosing of of um psychedelics like psilocybin or lsd um and they're and they're gathering data by measuring the daily outcomes on patients through an app so they're completely democratizing the research data and gathering data directly of, of you know real life outcomes and gathering vast data sets and doing publications and maybe journals so i'm really interested in just bypassing the whole randomized control trial system and getting democratization of new mm. novel treatments with i think that's the way it's going to go i mean yeah, something has to give, doesn't it? Because yeah. it's right, the whole system is actually just slowing up progress. It's not helping in any way. So, um, yeah, I, I agree completely. Anyway, it's, taking us back to where we started off is interesting, really, because you, you described there this amazing, simple, straightforward technique which can give uh, meaningful results in a very short time, can obviously help people enormously. And... Uh, that, if you like, is that's the best of you know what's come from the world and thinking of complementary and alternative medicine. Um, on the other side, we have the you know the astonishing things that are achieved in surgery, mm -hmm. um, for example, helping people with physical problems and things in a way that was unthinkable even ten years ago. You know, with their eyes, with their mm -hmm. uh, joints, all these things. So. You know, the best of both worlds healthcare that we were sort of uh, tossing around at the beginning. These are the two elements that, that we need in there. We need uh, all that excellence in uh, uh, traditional medicine in terms of mm -hmm. what they can practically do. But we also need the kind of uh, completely different style of thinking that you've just been describing, which says, actually, 
things can happen in a much less tangible way. Nonetheless, with scientific explanations, I love the way he just described all the molecular comings and goings there behind this terribly simple thing. That's uh, amazing because it, it that provides a bridge for people who can't understand how stroking somebody could possibly help them. Mm-hmm. You know, it actually says, well, this is why actually. And that that's good, I think, because it, it helps bridge the gap between yeah, these two has been ways of looking at the world. Yeah. So, you know, th- this is what we need to, to somehow make this into a single thing, because the same person who's having the incredible operation needs some kind of support as they're going yeah. in or whatever you know these things are both needed for that one person yeah and i when i think about the the work of a typical gp busy gp overwhelmed you know about about 70 or 80 percent of the cases that present to a gp each day are things that they really can't treat well they have no good treatment for chronic anxiety no good treatment for chronic mm. depression no good treatment for fibromyalgia for chronic back pain, for chronic neck pain, for chronic headaches, for for IBS, for for menstrual disorders, chronic pelvic pain, you know, funny rashes. I mean, it's just an overwhelming number of conditions that there's no effective treatment for. Um, and yet, my belief is that almost all of these are based in in inescapable stress and trauma. And so, in my clinic, in this very room where I am, I had a 65-year-old Maori lady. So she's an indigenous lady in New Zealand with 14 years of severe fibromyalgia with excruciating muscle pain in, a, in many muscles in her arms and shoulders and back and hips and legs, um, extremely disabling. We did, I did four sessions a evening in a week. She didn't live in where I am. She came from the other side of the country. Her daughter brought her. And at the end of the last session, she danced a jig on the floor behind me because all of her muscle pains had vanished and her daughter has kept in touch and said that her mother's life is completely transformed and this is an example of a condition i mean it's treated with steroids and all sorts of harmful medications um, i'm working at the moment with a client who has chronic spontaneous urticaria so at a time of life crisis and stress when she lost her husband and other bad things happened she started developing these terrible rashes which are very painful every day. And um, she's been under the care of an immunologist for months and months and months, and they tried every treatment and nothing's working. And the next step was to put her on cyclosporin, which is a really toxic you know, drug to damage the immune system. And uh, she said, I'd rather not have that. So we're working with Havening to see if we can uncover the traumatic because illness is meaningful. The symptoms of illness that we have or a metaphor for some kind of dis-ease we have or um, trauma or uh, emotional problems within the body. And and the Havening theory gives us wonderful tools for taking a very careful and logical history to find the key events and to work on those. And um, so I'm really intrigued to see if we can make a difference to... Um, so I now, getting, I now have a formal referral pipeline from a consultant immunologist at our biggest teaching hospital, that all the patients mm-hmm. they can't treat, they're sending to me to see if right. we can try a different approach and then <laughs> see send what you can do for reassessment. That's amazing. Well, that's I mean, that's something that you know we need to adopt as well, don't we, Robin? Um, Absolutely. Those referred pathways, but you mentioned something around training and education, um, Robin. That 
this is the fundamental of where this knowledge has to come from, you know, yes. training our future doctors, future nurses to be aware. I mean, they might not do it themselves or they might want to, but we need to have those referral pathways, as you say, moving into yeah. the future of, of, of medicine and integration. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, in a way, I'm the most hopeful I've ever been because, <laughs> because I've discovered this extraordinary capacity of human beings for healing. I mean, I really think that Ron Rudin should get a Nobel Prize for this work. I mean, it's just, it's mm. just astounding in its implications. And to discover that human beings can do this. But, but healing only occurs when you complete your reverse relationship. If the nature of pra medical practice is so dominant and sometimes so, so, you know, violent and traumatic that it takes away the capacity for humans to heal. It, it's, you know, we've created a system that stops healing and doctors are incredibly incurious about the capacity for healing. I mean, some of the research is just embarrassing that you probably know of the um, spontaneous remission project. So these are patients yeah. with advanced metastatic cancer who survive long term without treatment or with only palliative treatment. And a group in the USA scanned 800 journals in 40 languages and have found three and a half thousand cases fully documented with CT scans and everything else of human beings that apparently recover or survive long term with what is terminal, essentially terminal cancer. So human beings have this capacity for healing, but that's a bit embarrassing to an oncologist or a surgeon <laughs> when you said, well, you've got three to four months to live. And 20 years later, they're still alive and well, and you scan them again, there's no sign of a tumor. But there's a lack of curiosity within the medical profession, um, and it's seen as a threat. And, you know, even though I now have a collection of about half a dozen cases of severe chronic pain, essentially cured with havening, and I've written to my, you know, pain specialists in the local big public hospital saying, please, can I come and make a presentation? It's a bit threatening, isn't it? If you've done all this study to get a pain fellowship and then someone comes along and say, well, this might be cured in 20 minutes with a different approach <laughs> where you just, you know, with something really simple. So it's, you know, I think there's all sorts of barriers to innovation being adopted. So it's, yeah, the medical system's pretty closed. It's, it's really well designed to stop any real innovation. Mm -hmm. You're very well placed there in a way. It's interesting. You've come to... Uh, a technique which anybody off the street might say, oh, yeah, I'd like to learn to do that. You've come to it with this enormous background of deep immersion in healthcare and understanding of the systems and everything else you've been working, you know, as I say, majorly in depth. With it. So when you walk up and say, hey, we could do something different here, you're not just a man off the street, actually. So it does put you in a particular position to be able to introduce something new. Yeah, and, that, and that's really, I think, why I persisted to work in the mainstream healthcare for so long. Mm. Uh, looking back, in some ways, I regret that because, because you know, what I know now, you know, I could have been engaged in profoundly healing work for a, a long time. But, um, but it has the benefit of being, yeah, I mean, I've been in very senior leadership roles. I mean, my work on compassionate healthcare, you know, eventually was lauded. I got the highest prize of the... New Zealand Medical Association. So I'm, I'm a little hard to ignore. Um, and exactly. that helps open doors. And we're, yeah. we're training people that are kind of infiltrating into systems. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did the first havening on a, a prisoner in prison who has severe claustrophobia and just 
for 20 years has been locked up in cells and so on and freaking out, punching holes in walls and, and you know, just a dreadful time for many, many years. We did one session at Havening via a video link and all that's completely gone. And now he's working with a cancer totally focused on building a new future. I mean, that's incredible. So it would be wonderful to get it into prisons because every prisoner has so much trauma. Um, yeah. So yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, look, I think we're going to wrap it up there. What an interesting chat. Uh, thanks so much, Robin. Yeah, loved it. And uh, yeah, this mixture you bring of, of uh, deep experience of healthcare and its issues, but also of finding things that really work, uh, which are based on completely different kind of thinking. Really fascinating. I, it's, I love it. I love your radical thinking, Robin. So people can find out a lot of information from my website, which is neuroscienceofhealing.com. Mm -hmm. And I have a YouTube channel. If you just Google my name, Robin Youngson, on YouTube, um, you'll find um, a lot of videos, including there's a 12-minute video of a demonstration I happening in someone, a 70-year-old lady who's been um, really traumatized for 20 years after being held up at gunpoint in South Africa, mm. believing she was going to be killed. And, and nightmares and flashbacks and um, and you see in 12 minutes her completely letting go of this trauma and the extraordinary change in her appearance and and how it works out and there's a there's a video in which just I explain about havening and the science behind it and how it works and there's there's a, quite a lot of very accessible material there if people are curious. Right. Thank you so much. It has been quite inspiring and. I hope our listeners um, also get inspired and um, have a look at your website and, and the technique as well. Well, Penny, thank you. Robin says that you're being really courageous and battling in the NHS to try to change systems and make things better. So that's, you know, really, really admire you for doing that because I, I know how challenging that is. It is, but we keep going. We keep fighting. <laughs> yeah, we, all, we face so many crises in the world and, you know, as Einstein said, the quality of thinking that got us into this mess, you know, ain't going to get us out of it. So we've got to find ways to democratize, you know, radical innovation. Absolutely. And, and get out Absolutely. of the straitjacket of the, the formal systems. Absolutely. Um, and that's what makes me hopeful. And that excites me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much, Robert. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cancer Talk. Do subscribe and look out for the next edition of our podcast. And if you have friends and colleagues interested in the development of UK cancer care, do pass on the details of Cancer Talk. Goodbye.